You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mm. I've always known. <laughs> you tell me when you're drunk. <laughs> what is the worst uh, social behaviour you have ever seen a comedian exhibit? The whole thing was on speakerphone. It was so weird. What did she? What did she answer? Me? Fuck you! <laughs> if you guess it, I, I will say yes. It's now time to play the beautiful game. It just gets wider the further down you get. Because that man is a goddamn hero. When they go, oh, I just smashed. I just did this gig in Dubai. I smashed it. He'll go, oh, I'm really proud of you. <laughs> I'm Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> I would like you to visualise the comedian who you hate because you fear you're a little bit like them. To download the full recording of ComCom Pod Redacted live from the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival, as well as a whole host of other exclusive content, become a member of the Inner Circle at comedianscomedian.com slash donate. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and I'm very proud to be bringing you today this conversation with Sophie Willen. Sophie, who has made a huge impact at the Edinburgh Festival and on the wider comedy circuit uh, since starting comparatively recently, I think. She's, she's one of those people who, as you will hear, uh, has had a very interesting career in a slightly different form of performance or several slightly different forms of performance before bringing herself to comedy. And uh, we are going to talk about some things that we have never talked about on the podcast before. Uh, as a, a brief example, something about how um, uh, Sophie's theatre work and her work with working with care leavers and uh, working with the Arts Council in order to fund those projects gives her a completely different approach to not just not just funding her Edinburgh shows, which incredibly she manages to do through Arts Council funding. For, and I know lots of comedians' ears will... Uh, prick up at that thinking is there a way to get things paid for not without a truly impressive commitment and uh, desire to say and do something meaningful and but not just in terms of the the kind of machinations necessary 
to... Is machinations a negative word? I don't mean it to be. I don't think it is. But the, the mechanisms necessary to make that happen financially, but also it permeates every angle of what she does. Her whole approach to writing and creating a show is a fascinating journey and a fascinatingly different journey to anyone else's that we've had on the podcast before. So with uh, only a tiny bit further ado, which is to say, hey, that advert for the redacted on the, uh, the private podcast feed was pretty good. Let me just put that back in your mind. Yeah, we'll come back to that later. Now, with no further ado at all, this is Sophie Willen. So where are you in comedy at the moment? Uh, where am I? To? What am I up to? I'm not going back to Edinburgh this year, which I'm really excited about. A real sparkle in your it's, eye when you said yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't like going to Edinburgh. Okay. I know some people probably do, but I just have always found it a really painful, anxiety-provoking experience. So I'd be happy not to do it. It's good because you generate a show, which uh, is brilliant, isn't it? And it forces you to do it. So that's fantastic. But the experience of Edinburgh, I find quite difficult so I'm not doing that I'm focusing on, on writing a sitcom with uh-huh. the Carolina Hearn bursary that I got this year Amazing. and it's really great I'm, you know Shane Allen's been really supportive and we're actually working with a production company so we're going to hire the production company and it's going to be under BBC so they're okay. commissioning the script and then we're finding the production company rather than doing it the other way which is just fabulous really you know because okay. you so focusing on the sitcom and then probably going to write a show ne- for next year Another Edinburgh. So you did. Had you? Was it your third show that I saw last year, or your second? Second stand-up, third solo hour. Okay, talk so, to me about that. What's the difference? So basically, your... I'd uh, before I went into stand-up, I did sort of live art and theatre and kind of weird cabaret and queer cabaret, a lot of that sort of stuff. And then I did a, 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 a solo show on a, a rural touring commission. So it was in development with uh, lots of rural touring schemes across okay. the country. And I did like a 50-day tour of this show. Okay. So that was the first that, solo. That was the, that was the weird live art one? Well, no, that was more of like a, a, a sort of a family rural touring show, but that was a first solo one. Before that, I'd done, I set up a, a, a female cabaret collective called Eggs Collective, which was more live art, sort of queer cabaret okay. That sort of stuff. Okay. So they do, they're still going, they're still doing their thing. It's still that kind of circuit. And I'd done sort of theatre for a while. But when you say theatre, people think that you were like an actress in plays. So it wasn't It wasn't like that. It was more like autobiography or, you know, I worked with forced entertainment. I yeah, right. Know. Yeah, so I that don't know kind if of... I knew, or maybe we'd had that conversation before. Yeah. I, I studied a, a lot of things about forced entertainment when I did my crazy, wacky art college thing. I went yeah. to Dartington. It's that sort and, of stuff. Oh, my yeah. God, they love forced entertainment, which yeah, is yeah, yeah. The, the elements of that kind of work I remember are, like, you absolutely couldn't call it a play. No. It, even among devised theatre, it was particularly... It could often be weird and repetitive yeah, yeah. or lots of things written on bits of cardboard and... Yeah, forced entertainment's the extreme, isn't it, of that kind of... And, you know... I don't think I ended up... They definitely were a massive influence on what I did, but it, I wasn't doing the same sort of stuff, really, because okay. theirs is really out there, live art, arty stuff. Yeah. So mine was always quite funny, and, and we did... I set up this cabaret collective called Eggs Collective that were like a female sort of feminist collective, and then I, 
I ended up spending a long time sort of dressing up as various different animals to try and explore what I had to say. I don't really know why. <laughs> well, we're gonna, we, can't, we can't move straight past that. I had a year where I dressed up as a cat, uh, a cat that was allergic to dairy products, that, okay. had a, that, that was in love with a fish. So there's all this weird... And You say for a year? Yeah, we did lots of different shows of it. And, I'd, and we did like kind of... I used to do more spoken word as well. The, the Poet Laureate of South Africa came over to Manchester and I did like a, a partnership with them about the end of the apartheid and okay. a performance. So, and then I worked with the, uh, some spoken word artists from New York and did a thing called Spoken Like a Tree. So it was, I did all the kind of sp- spoken word and then the kind of live art stuff. Okay. And then the cat became this rapping cat for a while, <laughs> which was actually quite fun, but bizarre. I think you, yeah. you, what you're really reminding me of at the moment is there's um, there's an Australian performance artist called Stellark. Oh, I don't right. know if you uh, no. uh, heard of Stellark. And um, he at the time, I mean, this was in 2000, sort of 97, 98. Yeah. Um, he came and gave a talk at our college, and we were all kind of doing kind of crazy yeah. head exploring art stuff. And what Stellark would do is um, he would dress in a sort of exoskeleton that he built himself, whereby all of his dance movements yeah. controlled a giant robot arm next to him. Yeah. And so he'd do it. Uh, the point, the, great, the point at which this relates to you will become clear. Um, and I remember he, it was this incredibly out there, really kind of quasi-cybernetic mm. sort of art slash dance. And then he came, and, he came and gave a talk at our college. And in the talk, he was the most down-to-earth kind of... I remember him going, yeah, right, a lot of the time just trying to make sure I don't get hit in the face by a crane, you know. And and he just seemed to have, and and this is what you're saying reminds me of it, this really charming kind of, he's talking about quite densely artistic ideas, but in a really, like when you were just describing it there, you were like, yeah, sort of dressed up as a cat for a year. Do you know what I mean? There's there's a really kind of down-to-earth sort of grounding. It doesn't sound like you're away with the fairies. Being pretentious. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. whilst describing some fairly out there I did enjoy ideas. it. So my friend dressed up as a fish, and I did this whole poem about kind of desire and, you know, love really, about, you know, kind of unrequited love and about how the fish, you know, couldn't get close to the the, the cat couldn't get close to the fish because she'd kill it, you know, because it's the claws. And so it was quite, it was, it was kind of quite creepy, but good. You know? Okay. Yeah, I quite enjoyed it. And then the, the fish sort of danced around me to reggae for a while. So that was, it's quite surreal and odd. And, and yeah. in making that kind of work, were you, did you feel in control of what you were doing? What, or do you feel like you were exploring a thing? Did you, like, what, what's, like, I don't really ever talk to anyone about making that kind of work. So you're in, like, just it's talk us through the process. It's very isn't it? So it starts, I, like, it starts with, like, performing and improvising and, you know, trying different things. Out, and then you go and write and then you go back to it. And So I always felt very in control as a performer with that sort of stuff, you know, and, and we were kind of free. I, I worked at a theatre called uh, Contact Theatre in Manchester where we kind of had free reign to just be really creative and explore and do what you want to do, really, and, and try and, lots of different... I'm sorry, I've interrupted you. Uh, um, what... What is when you feel like that in in the realm of that kind of work? When you feel like something is working, like yeah. you 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 know it's, it's based on performance. You do a thing. What is what is you, know, you dress up as a cat? What it, what what is that thread of like all oh, this is working? Is that based on 
Like, what is it switching on in you that, that makes you go, oh, this works better than when I'm dressed up as a dog, say? Is it a reaction from an audience? Is it a feeling like you're going, there's something true in this or something to discover in this? I think probably both the audience reaction, you know, with it. And then also um, the cat was really kind of quite charming and really creepy character, which I really enjoyed playing. You know, and it was kind of, and it could go quite, and the fact that it could go really surreal, you know, it's all performance-based. You know, I used to love and still love, you know, David Hoyle, Divine David. Yes, OK, yeah. Um, and he's like a big influence of mine. He really reminds me of my grandmother as well. And I think watching him, you know, he just very in the moment with performance and allowing your face and allowing your body to be and do quite odd things and go with it, you know. It's quite clown, I suppose. I did a lot of clown as well, sort of like clown workshops and, and that, that kind of playing with an audience and feeling like... You can be odd and surreal and grotesque and, you know, as the cat was a particular embodiment of that, really. So that was what I did with that. What else around that period of time? Yeah, there was a few animals, actually. We did get quite animal heavy. There was a hamster for a while. So these weird... Yeah, they were part of ensemble pieces as well. Okay. So we were in, like, a sort of feminist, sort of female collective, I suppose. It was all comedy collective. And it was all quite surreal and wild and everybody doing quite different things, you know. And and are you the only person from that collective who has gone on to move stand into stand-up? Yeah, ish. There was another girl who uh, sort of went on to do stand-up. It was kind of me and her were kind of like peas in a pod, but we had quite an intense friendship and it would just... She kind of went into it but never really committed to it. So she'd do like the odd open mic or whatever and... It's kind of complicated with her, really, because she kind of had all this potential but never really followed anything through. And then when I left the Feminist Collective, I think she left us shortly afterwards and kind of, as a, you know, fingers in the odd pie but never really ploughs through. Stand-up was something she wanted to do but never really committed to that much. Okay. Uh, but I'm the only one who's actually gone down the stand-up route properly. And it yeah. it's, it sounds like this is, um, in terms of... Um a kind of background within culture or a background within art. Yeah. It's quite an unusual origin for a comic. Yeah. Like, people are, people often are a bit... Like, when I meet comics... I, when I when I started doing comedy, I always assumed that everyone I, I would meet in a dressing room was from an equally weird and unusual background. Yeah. You know, I did street performing for a long time yeah. and clowning in circus and stuff like that. And And then I would go on to meet people who'd actually gone into comedy from having worked in a job mm-hmm. centre or been worked in a bank yeah. or something and had quite and had a sort of a like an inverted commas normal career. Yeah. And then it had gone nuts. I think you're definitely from a category of like you've sort of sort of experimented or, or kind yeah, of Yeah, because I did the queer cabaret circuit quite a lot and that was just absolutely wild. You know, I did one performance where I'd attached um like party poppers to my like these big you know, confetti cannons to my bra. Okay. And then stripped off and then when I and then like, you know, let the confetti cannons go all over the room. You know, and I, I had one performance with on a drag night that I did where I, I got this band up and performed a kind of they were all fifty uh, year old men with beards down to the knees. So they're quite an odd bunch. And then they played massive harmonicas, real reggae music. And I got one of my poems and we put it to it and we made this kind of reggae drag performance thing which went really well on the drag circuit they loved it i once tried it in the frog and bucket <laughs> <laughs> not so much you know so it's knowing your crowd isn't it 
So it's come from that quite weird, you know, it was all that experimenting and then also the, just the theatre, the straight theatre and then they're producing sort of applications and stuff like that, which is all very different from from stand-up, really. So it was quite a, a, a change of beat, really. And, and what... Are there things that you miss from that world in stand-up? Yeah, I think so. Like, just the performance is is so much freer. And I think the the problem is a lot of the time with theatre and live art, the performance comes first, so the writing's not as strong, you know, often. Particularly with live art, it's like, what does this orange mean? What could we do with this orange? And, and it gets quite, you know, abstract. And the writing kind of comes last often. The, the okay. writing can be actually quite flabby. Whereas stand-up's the opposite, isn't it? Everything's really tightly written. It's, you know, you know, really precise. The jokes are really clear. But often the performance is the is the last thing, really. Yes. So I suppose what I miss, really, is probably the, the freedom of the performance. You know, the freedom of that kind of clownness and allowing yourself to really take risks as a performer and really be vulnerable, which stand-ups, I don't think, do as much. You know, like I saw Natalie Palamides... Um, you know who does? I, I have heard about her. I haven't yet to see her. Fantastic, and her show really reminded me of that—that that freedom that you have on stage to really go there and be, you know, as vulnerable and grotesque and and wild and fun and 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 bizarre as you possibly can, which I kind of miss, I and suppose. Here, well, here's my question then: If you like, is there a need in stand-up to miss something? Surely, in stand-up. You can do whatever you want. You can set the parameters. You could be yeah. as weird and do you know? Is there a reason why you don't do those things that you miss in stand-up? Maybe I would do them in the future. You know, maybe when you've got more sort of feathers to your bow. I suppose for me, you know, writing these two shows, it's all been about making sure the writing's really strong and you know the structure's really clear because I really love, you know, creating a really strong structure, particularly with with stand-up shows as well, making sure that that's really clear. And also letting the writing do the work, you know, that's where most of it is, isn't it, I think, with, with stand-up. But I think you probably can mix it. I think this, there is the, the, the thing, though, is that people will underestimate if you mix the two, going, oh, she's just doing that bit of performance there to distract from a bad writing. You know, they'll assume that you're okay. copying out. That's a really interesting answer. OK, so, so it's, it's that assumption that you're trying to safeguard against. Maybe that, and also just because I've had a lot to say in these two shows that I've been, you know, about, you know, that I've needed that narrative and needed the writing to be the main focus, I suppose. Maybe in the future you'd, you'd try different things. But then yeah. I'd really love stand-up as well. Like, you know, I love watching really good stand-ups. I think both are brilliant. You know, I've not yet infused both words. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, don't, yeah. I, don't mean to, I don't mean to sort of ask that question from no. a position of, why haven't you done that? Yeah, I no, just no. mean it's, it's interesting because I... Like, in my own journey, I've kind of yeah. gone, I really love stand-up, and I really, like, part of me, like, I never want to drag around a suitcase full of props ever yeah. again. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that's an element of it. But it's also, I really enjoy the fact that all of the kind of, all of the tricks of the sort yeah. of previous physical stuff that I used to be interested in, they fall away, and actually it's just about the purity of yeah. the idea. And as you say, the things that you want to say. Now, in your two stand-up shows... You have said an incredible amount of things, like in terms of just in terms of pure narrative, the mm -hmm. things you're describing, the stories from your life that you're telling. I mean, there's an enormous volume of of stuff there. Mm -hmm. So, for people that don't know you, can we can you describe the sorts of territory that you're talking about in your work? 
Yeah, so I, I suppose personally, obviously my background is that I was brought up in and out of the care system, fostered mainly by my grandma, but went back into sort of supported housing when I was 15. My mum was a drug addict, so uh, she's been on welfare and there's a lot of mental health issues in my family. So for me, the shows are about talking about those issues from my own personal experience, but also they were part of a wider thing I wanted to talk about. In happened around 2014, I got sort of really angry with the the negative representation of welfare recipients, particularly on TV. You know, programs like Benefit Street, Bring Back the Borstal. You know, popping on Loose Women and watching Josie Cunningham being absolutely slated by Mylene Class. Mm. You know, this this real bourgeois zeitgeist happening was was really getting to me I was getting quite irritated by it because you know these were people that I related to these you know my mum was one of these people these welfare recipients you know and, and I as a care leaver you know felt that there was an underrepresentation of positive care leavers mm-hmm. you know and I felt that I wanted to do something about that really and also there'd been a lot of cuts to to uh, sort of social services and mental health services one of the main ones is the bursary for uh curlevers to go to university had been cut mm-hmm. that year which felt like quite a big thing for me because I, I I didn't stick with it actually but I did go to university and studied writing on a bursary scheme mm-hmm. I only ma- managed to do it for nine months but when that cut it just it felt like a kind of final nail in the coffin so I thought I really want to do a big project that encapsulates everything that I want to write about really so the, the stand-up shows were part of a kind of wider project that I was working on. And in the stand-up shows, they're kind of about, you know, looking at labelling. Both the shows are about looking at labelling, you know, bringing questions around class and mental illness and all these different things and reclaiming them and having quite a positive, vibrant spin on them, I suppose. So I think my shows are quite positive and uplifting as well as, I suppose, they've got kind of darker themes going through, but I'd say they're sort of darkly optimistic in a way. Yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. That's a good phrase. Yeah, you know. So, so it feels like stand up was a sort of a a sensible next step for someone who was working in live art and wanted to say a particularly nuanced thing or tell a particularly nuanced story. Yes, yeah, so I was doing the live art queer cabaret, and then I wrote a, a children's sort of well, a family show called Novice Detective. It was an autobiographical show about meeting my father, and you know, it was set like a detective show. It was a part of a massive rural touring commission where I sort of travelled the country and a lot of teenagers were involved in the promoting of the show in different areas. Then I met a producer at BBC at the Media City in, in Salford because I lived near it and I started just flyering the producers because I thought, how do you get in to this world? Ah. You know, I really wanted to write TV stuff, you know, sitcoms. I'd had an idea for a few years of something that I wanted to write. But I had no idea of how you go about meeting people. Nobody comes to see live art shows. You know, no producers are coming to watch you dress up as a cat and talk about how you're in love with a fish. Sure. Nobody's coming to see that. So I went down to Media City and I flyered them with this That's rural touring that, show. That is a really uh, direct method it was of quite getting direct. someone's attention. <laughs> well, I flyered Asher Taller and he didn't appreciate it, actually. But I flyered a few people and nobody was really up for it. And then I met this one producer, uh, Rebecca Patworth, small, northern, quite bullshit. Um, she just really probably related to me, mm-hmm. you know, um, and she kind of brought me in and said, what are you doing? And I invited her to come and see my theatre show. She said, brilliant. And she said, well, let's start talking about a script commission. So she commissioned me to write a script 
Um, she, well, first of all, she said, have you got any ideas? So I went. I've, I'd been sitting on these ideas for years, and it's all the stuff that ended up in my stand-up shows. But I'd been writing them for ages and not really knowing where to put them. I'd had an idea for a sitcom for a while. So I basically just brought in a, a whole pad of flip chart paper and blue tap and pinned it all over the wall, showed her this kind of world that I'd created and then went through all the characters. <laughs> and you know when you write character breakdowns, okay. you know they become almost like stand-up, don't they? So sure. You know, I'd said, like, my mum, you know, she looks like Iggy Pop does now if Iggy Pop could only shop on Bury Market, you know. <laughs> so I'd written all these little blurs that eventually made it into my sort of stand-up, really. So she commissioned a script. We got that moving. A lot of that first script that I wrote ended up being my first show of it sort of describing my family and different things. Um, and then, actually, nothing happened with that script. And she said, have you thought about trying stand-up? You know, so then actually it was through Rebecca who mentioned stand-up that I thought, I'll just give it a go. Okay. And made that transition. Very awkwardly I made that transition, actually, because she booked me to host an event at the Frog and Bucket for BBC Comedy. And, you know, all the up-and-coming Northern acts were on, you know, at the time. I didn't know any of them. Okay, what kind of people are we talking Curie about? Kiri Pritchard, yeah. Phil Ellis, you know, all these gotcha. people. And they're thinking, who the fuck is she? You know, I could see it in their eyes. You, you, know. were, you were hosting it? I was hosting it, which was a bad decision on their part because Dan Nightingale was on the bill and he's a brilliant <laughs> host. So he was he's sort of the perfect compa, isn't he? He's the perfect compa. And I, as me, right, never hosted a, a comedy club night in my life. I thought the best thing to do is come on with a band. So I brought my bearded drag band to this okay. event, did this performance, which, you know, and it was then I realised, God, this would have been great if there was, you know, it was at a queer cabaret event. But here, on a bill full of comedians, you know, with, you know, in a comedy club, you know, people just looking at you like you're absolutely mental. It was not quite the same. So it was after that, I thought, oh, God, right, it's quite a different style then. Did you, did you, what was your appreciation of stand-up at the time before that? Well, I loved stand-up, but I never really thought of myself as being someone who would do it. You know, I loved Richard Pryor. I'm still a massive fan of Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor was one person I watched quite a lot of you know, when I was thinking about writing a show about my own experience, particularly, because that how he could be so dark but keep it also so clubby. Mm -hmm. I thought, I really want to get that balance of the jokes not being sacrificed because you're telling quite a dark narrative, I suppose. You, you know what I mean? Oh, 100%, yeah. So I wanted it to just be as punchy as it could be, you know, making your point. And I thought, you know, if I can make my mum being a drug addict funny mm -hmm. in five minutes, then that would be a start, wouldn't it? You know, and I loved Stuart Lee. I was always a fan of Stuart Lee before I got into stand-up. I went to watch a lot of his shows because he'd come from that slightly theatre background, you know, and Daniel Kitts and Tim Key, I'd, I'd watched pretty much all of his shows. So I had, had my hand in okay. the stand-up world. I was really interested in it, but okay. I never really thought of myself as being able to do it, you see. It's it's really fascinating. Just to go back to this moment of you, of uh, this, was it, sorry, the name of your producer was... Rebecca Papworth. Rebecca. So um, going into a room with her, like with, to, there, there is a story oft told, not necessarily on this podcast, but from lots of comics I talk yeah. to. You do well at Edinburgh as a stand-up. You finally get in, yeah. you get nominated or something. You get in a room with someone, with producers, and they go, what are your ideas? And yeah. you go, well, I'm just, I'm just a stand-up. I want to yeah. do more stand-up. And they go, oh, okay. Yeah, no. you know. Whereas it sounds like you're, like they've said... 
Well, she said, what are your ideas? And you're like, bang, here yeah, you just yeah, covered yeah. the walls with all of your ideas, which I imagine is exactly what they're hoping for whenever they ask anyone what their ideas are. I'd always wanted to write, you know, scripts and stuff from a really young age. Stand-up was something... I never thought I'd be good enough to do stand-up, really. I, I just thought it was, like, amazing, quite frightening thing to do, you know? Because a few friends have said, you should do stand-up. Because also, when I was doing all this live art stuff, I'd noticed that I ended up being funny in, in each scenario. Okay. Which, you know, was... Especially back then, I know it's only a few years, but things are changing at the moment, but, you know, people never took me seriously, or they thought, oh, she's just... You know, she's always making jokes, though, isn't she? That You know, in that world, you're never taken seriously, whereas actually in stand-up, you can, you know, build more of a reputation and, and actually say smart things and make it funny and people aren't thinking you're stupid. That's so. a really interesting perspective. So because the basic ground rules in stand-up are we're all trying to be funny, yeah. no one can ignore what you're saying and write it off as a joke. Oh, no. that's a fascinating yeah. perspective. It does make a difference. You know, as in theatre, they're like, well, it's a shame she went for the laugh. You know, it's yeah. like, you know, it's always that. And it, and it is, you know, I talk about this a lot now, you know, better being predominantly middle class environment, which is getting a bit. I'm even I'm bored of saying it now because it's getting <laughs> it's so in the zeitgeist now, isn't it? That actually, we've kind of done the conversation. Is it moving on? Who knows? You know. But I remember at the time, you know, when I wrote on record, a lot of my writing for that debut hour, I thought I worked with this live artist called Stacey Mckeishi once, who's fascinating, and again just a performance is just a mad and amazing. And it just, it's that type of performance that Divine David has where they take you to another place, you know, within that hour. Because, you know, they're doing weird things. You know, she has this bit in a performance, Stacey McKeishi, where she's, uh, she has Fargo on in the background and it's all about the behaviour that you do when you're lying. You okay. know, so they're touching the mouth and, and then she starts drinking this bottle of wine and it's basically through the wine she's trying to talk about grieving grief and not okay. processing grief and okay. alcohol. So a lot of what happens in live art is metaphorical through the action. Sure. Do you know what okay, I mean? Yeah, Which is like yeah. a completely different way of doing it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it's very raw and she's very, you know, big and vulnerable. Anyway, I worked with her for a bit and she was going to be my mentor. It didn't quite work out. She said, will you write down a list of just everything that's, you know, difficult for you? I want to know all your fears the things you hate about yourself the most. You know, she's quite an intense woman. So I wrote this massive list of everything I was frightened of and all my fears and everything. But I think my list must have terrified her. <laughs> I was completely <laughs> expecting that the story to go there. Yeah. yeah, because then she said, I'm so sorry, I don't think I can work with you anymore. And was, on the top of the list, it was abandonment issues. You know what I mean? So she really fucked me, actually. Oh, God. I know. But also, she'd come from a very upper-middle-class family, very, very posh, right? She'd had this very... Quite sheltered life, actually. And then she does these workshops that are all about, you know, express and be. And, you know, and that's all fucking great until you're dealing with someone who's actually had some trauma to talk about. You yeah. know, so there was no safety blanket. So I went through that with her. But then actually afterwards, when I was writing on record, I revisited the notes that she'd given me originally about, like, you know, being vulnerable and, you know, writing down all your worst fears and all the things that you don't like about yourself. She said, write everything down that you don't like about yourself. And actually, that was one of the places that I started with on record because I knew that I wanted to write about the kind of negative language that surrounds mental health and social services. That was something I was working on with bits of material. I knew that I needed to set up my family 
And I really wanted to humanise my mum and let people see her the way I see her as this kind of funny, lovable fuck-up, but I wanted them to see her. And I knew that I wanted to explain who I was, so I thought, actually, the best way to probably do that is to start doing it honestly with the things that I don't like about myself. So I thought, well, I struggle with boundaries, I hate that about myself. Now I've accepted it a bit more. What what does that mean? You struggle with boundaries? Well, you know, I'm just I'm I'm a wild person, so I've always been a bit wild. I remember at that time it really helped me process a lot actually because I remember that time I was in a very quite middle class theatre environments, and I'd never even thought about class until I started writing this show or what it means. And I was surrounded by people, and and this feminist collective I was in, I described them in my last show. So you know, they'd all come from good, good backgrounds. They all had bedtimes. They were the kind of people who could eat half a Kit Kat and save the other half for later, you know. So as everything was very controlled, and I didn't fit into that. I've always been quite a wild person. You know, if I have a drink, I'll, I'll, I'll end up orchestrating a conga around the, around the, around the, the pulp or something, you know. So it was those things that I thought, oh, you know, maybe these are bad things. I'd started to write down these different things about myself. The fact that I'd never managed to hold down a, a normal job. I'd been sacked from every job for having a row with a member of authority. And I thought, you know, write that down. So... Then I started writing that down and, and making jokes about it. And actually, weirdly, I worked with a guy called Scotty, who's a drag artist, and he worked with me for a little bit, and he, I mentioned about having records from social services. And he said, could we read them? Yeah. So anyway, I went into a session with him, and we basically spent two days reading all of my records, which was a strange thing, in a way, Actually, weirdly cathartic, because I'd never shared it with anybody because it's too indulgent, isn't it, to share your records with somebody. But here, under the name of work, I had somebody to share these quite horrific, um, you know, records with So this is Sophie. She is so easy to talk to. We recorded for a good long while and there is some extra material available, including uh, talking in more depth about the care records and uh, fitting the narrative of the show, unconferences, which are apparently a real thing, uh, fitting in class, what's funny about her specifically and how she'll know when she's finished and if anyone ever does know and what finished means. All of that stuff, plus all of the extra content from any episodes that have ever had any, exclusively available to the Insiders private podcast, which you can sign up for at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And for a small recurring donation of between two and ten pounds a month, whatever you think appropriate to express your support for this show, then you all get the same private podcast content with comedy critique, extras from shows and all the future extras going forward. You interview Stu, you can pitch to interview me about whatever you like, plus lots of other projects. More specifically, your ability to say, hey, why don't you do something like this? And I consider it and maybe do it. So it's a really good reflexive thing and I've really been enjoying contacting the private podcast community of Insiders. So sign up for that, be one of them and hear more from Sophie Willen. Now, if you're interested in the tour, which, oh my Lord, has been going so well, listen... Sometimes the touring can feel, not the shows themselves, but the process of getting oneself to the show, stressing about press, stressing about the, you know, the (laughs) accommodation. Basically, I think as soon as you hit 250 capacity venues, as soon as you can sell out a 250 capacity venue, which uh, which I am not quite yet at that... um, Uh, level but as soon as you can do that you can have a tour manager you can pay an old school friend seems to be how it's done an old school friend to ferry you around and and sort the place out I'm not at that level I'm doing it all myself and it can feel like a bit of a grind I'm happy to say the shows never feel like a grind and recently 
Oh my God, some of them have been manna from heaven. I mentioned last week just how much Northampton was since I spoke to you then. Shrewsbury has been another blinder. And Swindon, last night as I record this, last Wednesday as you listen to it, was something else. It was one of those ones where I was leaving it thinking, I want to tell all of my comedian friends about Swindon Arts Centre and the incredible crowd they've got. But at the same time, I want to keep it to myself because I don't want everyone else to know and ram the place. But holy hell, thank you, people of Swindon. The second half, the new material bit, went on for an hour. I'm sorry to anybody who missed their bus as a result because that went on longer than intended because I was having such an effing good time. So um, if you would like to come to any of the further, the second half now, I guess we're into of the tour, uh, all over the northwest, I mean Edinburgh and Glasgow as well, um, as well as uh, Southampton and other places. Other places! I can't read them off the top of my head, and I don't have the thing in front of me, but basically anywhere near you, if you think I might be near you, come and see it. It's comedianscomedian.com slash tour has got all the information you need there, and that has been so much fun. God, Swindon was so great. Who knew? I mean, I'd never played there before. I've done gigs there before, but I just... Anyway, anyway, this is stuff for perhaps a post-amble. Let's get back to the absolutely fabulous and extremely invigorating to talk to, if there's a word for that, Sophie Willen. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How do you feel about the way that the audiences at the Edinburgh Festival, I would imagine those are kind of predominantly middle-class audiences yeah. and the critics and the whole of the, the machinery yeah. of Edinburgh is a predominantly middle-class machine. Well, I think that's what I wanted to talk about in my first in, in the second show, Branded, was just about, you know, how suddenly, you know, first of all, you know, they've kind of written me off, I suppose, that industry. They make assumptions that you're a bit stupid and that those things do happen, you know. And actually, as that, can can you point to a, a specific example? Well, I had two reviews like in 2014. One said she's a lot smarter than she first appears. <laughs> yeah, I remember you talking about that. And the other one, and the other one <laughs> oh said, "Oh my god, it's mad, isn't it?" And another one said, "Distracting amount of cleavage that can be off putting at close range." Now, I don't think that those reviews would come out now. No, right? Because I think the, 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 there's been a shift. You know, the climate's changed I, I a bit. I feel they probably would still, but maybe would the they? reaction right. would be. 
like there'd be yeah. more people going, whoa, 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 whoa. I think they'd keep it under hats a bit sure, more. Sure, I think, sure. you know, then, it's only a few years ago, but there's been massive shifts, oh, well, there? I, I, well, I think. Hear, I but then maybe I'm just, you know, in on it now, so maybe I'm part of the problem. I, you know, no, 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 no. I, I think you're so in on it and you spent time reflecting on it that... My my fear is that you had too high opinion of <laughs> do you know what I mean of where reviewers are. Maybe you know I can still see stuff like that happening. Now, can you? But, right. Well. Yeah, it's good to hear that because you do get um, kind of you forget or you you, know, you need to keep looking, don't you, and seeing. Yeah. So I think um, that you know, and then after that, you know, the reviewers again having that kind of oh right, we've got a working class one quick, and she's northern. Grab your clogs and your whippet, Sophie. Let's go. You know. And then, and then also for me, it'd be really easy for me to go. Oh yes, I am the sort of Billy Elliot. Actually, I'm. You know, they'd, they'd be more than happy to write that story for you and go. Can yeah. you come and fit in this because we can write about this? It's yeah. an angle. And you know, I get paid for it, and they've got the story they want, and we all are happy. So sure. I think for me, it was about challenging that system. You know, in Edinburgh, because it's very easy to write stuff where you're just preaching to the choir, and they'll go, "We're good, you're good, we're very good." You know, but also challenge myself, you know, by not fitting into that. So when I wrote um, Branded, I started to work backwards with, you know, think about all the things I wanted to say with that. And, you know, I finally got it down to, I suppose, one sentence, which was, you know, I refuse to be shoved into a single narrative just so it's easier for society to process me. I thought that was encapsulating what what it all is. Mm. You know, and then I broke down you know, all the labels. So I started it with, like, talking about Edinburgh and then, you know, Northern, and I broke down, you know, what it means to be Northern and how I play up to my Northern stereotype, you know, and and also, you know, how it, it doesn't matter. And then I thought, you know, pushing myself where I could, so I wrote some material on the, uh, the, um, the recent bombing in Manchester and the kind of shit poetry that came out of that mm-hmm. period of time, you know, and also... Push- That's an incredibly bold angle to have taken... To, I thought to find so. anything negative about that, to even risk talking but about But this is it. what I think I want to do, is that actually really challenge yourself to not just say what people want to hear and not say what would be nice and easy for you to say. I talked about how I myself was allowed myself to be a northern stereotype, you know, an educating way to get away with murder. You know, and then with female, I think I talked quite honestly about how I feel, felt about that. And then class was the big one, where I think I talked, you know, told a very full perspective on you know, how I think class is for me and what it means and how I feel I've, I fit somewhere in the middle of it all. I don't feel like this working class hero, but then I certainly don't fit in in middle class environments. But, you know... One of the, the middle class environments in which you must find yourself are your audiences. Yes. Your predominantly middle class audiences. Well, only in Edinburgh, because okay. actually, you know, I put in bids to Arts Council, so I've been doing this for years, so I've been producing project since eggs collective but before that i did a uh, sort of a course called future fires that was a producing course which i put on a big social arts project and raised funds for it so that was my first one that was in 27 2007 mm-hmm. and i've been arts council funded pretty much every year since in some form so my projects have gotten bigger so in 2014 i did a massive strategic bid under a uh, grants for the arts. So what's, what's a strategic bid? So strategic bid is like things. normally comes under a bigger bid, big, and I normally comes under a bigger bid. Mm-hmm. But actually, I did it under a grants for the arts, which is smaller, but had the same kind of process of a strategic bid. So okay. there was a lot of partners. 
So I've, I've got lots of partners working on the bid. And by partners, you mean funders? Uh, well, no, funders, partners can be anything. So one of the things I'd started to do when I was in, in sort of 2007, really, was learn how to build partnerships and learn how to get yourself commissioned as an artist or a company. Mm -hmm. So going to venues and asking them for, right, I'm a young artist, I've got this, what can, what can we do together? So starting very early with that and then building it. So by the time I got to this bid in 2014, what I did is work with partners in very different ways. So I worked with one company called Swiss Foster Care, who I was on a panel member for, mm -hmm. who um, you know, have a lot of young people that they work with. I asked them to be somebody who would be able to offer space and young people to the project. The Lowry came on as a co-commissioner, so okay. they often ca offered cash. Um, you know, I had uh, Manchester Book Festival came on and offered uh, a, a space at the festival and cash and marketing. Okay. You know, Manchester Young Persons Hires, they offered a big lump sum, which was brilliant. So then when I do a bid, what I'll do is I'll take all these partners and all of the funding. So whether it's not got cash or got cash, it still amounts to something. Sure. So even the, the non-cash is a, is, a, is a sum in a mm -hmm. way. So you put that in a supporting kind. Mm -hmm. Then I put in a bid to the Arts Council. And this bid, I, I wrote like a manifesto alongside it. So it was kind of encapsulating two years of work and about 12 aims. So one of the aims was empowering care leavers to tell their own stories and become creative leaders. And then, you know, by your aim, you have seven actions and then you can evaluate it clearly at the end. So oh God, this is a whole other world to me and so it's fascinating. It is interesting. I, I love doing it, actually. And I think it makes your work more focused, for me, personally. It yeah, because you... you've got a brief. You've got yeah. even more of a brief. So it's less like, you know, with most comics, when we write an Edinburgh show, you go, mm, what, what shall I write about? Yeah. Actually, it probably is creatively useful to go, well, it has to be about this. When yeah. you talked before about, I got it down to a sentence at yeah, the beginning yeah. of the process, like, that's what this is going to be about. Yeah, that really is important to me, because then it means... When you're structuring a show, you can work backwards, you know, because you know what your end sentence is or you know what you're trying to talk about. So for me, writing, you know, branded was about setting up shop, which you do at the beginning of any story, is why you're here, you know, tell us why you're here, what you're going to talk about. And then I go through a series of, you know, discussing each label. And then you have a mid sort of conflict in the middle. Then at the end, you've got your resolution. That happens in any story, doesn't it? But it just it helps it if you know what you're going in to talk about before you... So with the bids, you know, we put in, I put in this... Uh, my biggest bid I've done, and then I, I applied for separate other pockets of funding mm -hmm. alongside it. So in total, we raised £110,000 to do a project over a few years. So one of them was to create a children's book written by Kerr Leavers okay. that will be published and delivered to children in Kerr, which has happened now. Oh, my God, that's Just great. Fabulous. And they're really vibrant, fun stories. So it's not like... All it is is that, you know, our effective memory is probably wrapped up in these stories. You know what I mean when they say effective memory? No, I don't know what that means. You know, in acting, they say, you know, if you're acting a sad scene, use effective memory. Oh, to, sure, you know. OK, yeah. So I suppose what we didn't do is I didn't say to any of these curly please write your story, you know. They can do what they want with those. You know, they don't have to write their story. They can write what they want. And it's about writing children's vibrant, fun playful and sometimes moving stories for children, you know. And also what I did is mentor these uh, co-leavers along the process. I did sort of a series of, you know, creative mentorship 
process it. So got them. There was one girl who wanted to act, so she's ended up doing a young theatre course that I set her up on. That's really sets you up. Actually, it's quite a good course in Manchester. So mm. finding different avenues for different people to go off and then continue to mentor them. And I pay myself a wage for that as well in my bid. You know, pay myself for mentoring, pay myself for running workshops, pay myself for writing my show, you know, and then for touring the show. And then also just measure every single audience member across the country and which audiences you've you've, you've met. So that's how you I know what audiences and what, how I'm outreaching different audiences. And then when I tour, I put a, a budget line in in every place that I go to, which allows a spending line for care leavers, you know, pe- people who've recovered from drugs and, you know, families on low incomes to be able to come to the show. So over 18, obviously. Yeah. But there's a spending line. So each venue will have, you know, 10% of the tickets subsidised by me, mm-hmm. by the Arts Council, mm-hmm. so that I know that I'm always reaching those audiences. Because to me, I don't want to perform only to Radio 4. Yeah. You know, that's not the point why I started it, really, so... Oh, God, I'm, I'm just going to sort of sit back for a minute and try and uh, uh, absorb all of that stuff. I mean, it, it, it's, it feels like... A, no, no, absolutely not at all. It, it, it feels like another world compared to most of the conversations I have on this podcast, mm-hmm. you know, and most of the conversations I have with other comics. It feels like I'm talking to an incredibly busy, functioning, meaningful artist who happens to also do some stand-up shows. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So in as much as I can kind of use That's the stand-up as a kind of prism to get into who you are, like, where does the energy come from? What, uh, what do you mean for the stand-up? Or... No, no, for, for all of it. Where does the, like, from, from the, the, I think, I mean, the size of the project you're describing, it feels like you get out of bed in the morning and immediately start smashing a list of goals is that the I did I I think I like balance as well that's important isn't it but I I mean I love performing so obviously it started with that and I love comedy I love writing stand-up I I I, I am you know a person who loves the stand-up side and and for me I suppose you know I'm probably quite an angry person I always have been so there's a lot there you know like when I was watching Loose Women and watching Myling Class just rip the shit out of Josie Cunningham because she'd had a boob job on the NHS. Okay. And, but you're talking about one very attractive woman who's had a very good life, you know, very normal. I'm talking about one woman who's struggled, she's been bullied for the way she looks, she's grown up on one of the roughest estates in the country, who became, you know, most hated woman in Britain, you know, which partly her fault, partly the son's fault, partly the world that we live in's fault, you know. So that anger got bubbling for me, and I think that really drove wanting to do this massive project. And then after that, actually, what what came afterwards with the with branded was this feeling actually that it still wasn't quite right. And actually, what you know, the obsession with ident- identity politics is still is also a problem. And you know, wanting to create a bit of balance with that as well. It's not you know not not wanting to create some sort of victim conversation. Do you know what I mean? And trying to get some some nuance because I think there's a lot of nuance is is lost. You know, it's very. Everything's very tribal, isn't it? Left and right, and this is right, this is wrong. You know, you're either on board with this or you're not on board with it. And, and you know, so I wanted to create a bit of balance in, in that as well, really. I'm interested in knowing how your own mental health 
okay. helps you do these things or hinders you from doing all the stuff you want to do. Let I mean, yeah. let's let's talk kind of specifically about anger. It's it's quite interesting that you. I think that there is this, there's a, there's a sort of a, dy- there appears to be a dynamic within you whereby you, like you said, you're, you're just being direct, you know, yeah. you're aware that there is a kind of an anger thing and a few of the uh, collaborations think- you've described, you've said well, that ended up not going anywhere. Or, yeah. I worked with that, but it didn't really go there and there. And I wonder if those I think are, that's are never different. been anger. That's often actually been low self-esteem on my part, which I, I think I've got over now. But for years, I would just never think that I was good enough. So I would bring people into a process and then allow them just to take over and it not be positive for me and then actually not work. So what I think I've been able to do now is just go, do you know what, I don't want a director. I don't want to collaborate with a group of people. I actually trust myself now to make my own work, do it and know that I'll do something that I'm proud of and then actually bring people in on your terms you know, and actually having the confidence to do that took me a long time. Rather do you know than what I going mean? to someone and saying, help me, yeah. you're sort of going Yeah, or just like someone. dragging people along with you for the ride. I did that through most of my 20s, you know, like my friend, you know, uh, who, who, who was also doing stand-up, but she never really did it. So I was going, come on, we'll do it together, you know, and, and just being, you know, really driven, probably a bit mental. You know, we robbed a brothel one night so that we could pay <laughs> to go and go and perform at this festival and then we got to the festival they didn't even know we were on we just took loads of drugs with the money we'd robbed from a brothel I mean it was just insane I was mad in my early 20s you know like 21 I was just desperate to to do it but also just just a wild wild person I've not been for therapy then as well my friend you know she was a bit of a passenger on this mad journey with me but the thing with passengers is they do like a free ride, so they're not completely innocent, you know. Yeah. So we yeah. had this very with Nail and I kind of relationship. It was really intense, you know. So there was, you know, there's that. And then the, the, the feminist collective, I think that was more about me trying to be in a group of people that actually were very different from me and me not realising what my strength was and that mm. actually those differences are, are, are all right and they're positive. So you know? in, the, in, the collect, in the feminist collective, yeah. you, you, you'd sort of said... I think that that there was a lot of middle class women. There was me and and this other girl who I was talking about a minute ago, who were the wild ones, and then there was sort of three other women that it felt very much like Mean Girls, if I'm honest. You know, there was very sort of everything was said with an eye contact and all this. So, okay. yeah, I've got a joke. I say, you know, you'd be in rooms thinking everybody's smiling, but why do I feel like a cunt? Yeah. You know? <laughs> okay. Then you'd realise you were in a disciplinary. You know, <laughs> you know and it was very like that. So, and, and is that something, like, when, did you start that collective? I started it. So you it. chose those women. I chose. What Was there an element of you? I think aspirational friendships. I look back on that now and think, what was I doing, really? I didn't really know that I was all right as me. I thought I should try and sort of hide my kind of wild side. My background was never something I really talked about that much or anything. You know, I thought I should be more like them. You know, that that's the sort of person I should be. You know, so I suppose it was that kind of thing. Okay. And it's only later that you realise that, you know, maybe because I felt that they were a bit bullying at times, that maybe they were just a bit um, jealous or intimidated. But that never crossed my mind that yes. you could be someone that they, you know, would that you could be you, that you could intimidate them. Even. Yeah, or even that because um, I got a couple of opportunities that I think one of the girls particularly was furious about because she wanted it, and um, you know, I never really thought about jealousy being a thing because I didn't have the self-esteem to think that that was possible. 
Do you know what I mean? Um, and so then, you know, I worked with different people. You know, I worked with Scotty briefly, but, you know, actually my agent stepped in and she did, didn't think it was the right fit for me. Um, and actually she was right because I didn't need a director. I needed to write on record myself and do it myself and not have this person asking to be booked in a hotel for, you know, the most expensive hotel in, in Manchester for four weeks minimum. And, mm. you know, all. and I was trying to kind of keep them happy and, and all this. I think it was actually about me having, like, you know, the self-esteem to go, no, I'm actually all right doing this on my own and building those skills on my own, really. And and what aspect you you touched on therapy there? Yeah. If and I realise it's a very yeah, private no, yeah. experience, no, but what what things have you learned? So in therapy, therapy? I did. Um, I, I started going for therapy because I got my records back when I was twenty three. Didn't really know what I was getting in for. I only got my records because I'd called social services and said I need a letter from you to send to university to prove that I'm a curlever so I can get a curlever's bursary to go to university. She said on the phone, oh, well, actually, we've got all this stuff on you. Would you like it? Now, being a naturally self-absorbed person... <laughs> yeah, you're not going to turn that down. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, yeah, more about me, fabulous. So anyway, I, I took these records, I read them, and I started, you know, sort of shaking and stuff because I had no... And this was the first process, in a way, of me seeing myself and having compassion for myself and seeing myself outside of what I was trying to fit into in these theatre environments and being able to think, oh, my God. You know, there's files in there that were really traumatic, you know, which I, I do talk about in the show and I make jokes out of, but, you know, there was some really sort of... You know, I was kind of malnourished as a kid. because Talking I was, through the letterbox and telling the care worker that you're hungry. Yeah, and, you know, and I stuff mean, like really that. stuff that is painful for me as an outsider to listen to. Yeah. To, that's like, Jesus, a hungry child talking through the letterbox, let yeah. alone be, to be confronted with those things yourself, experiences yeah. that you didn't necessarily remember mm. and suddenly you get shown almost a, like a mental video of... Yeah, yeah. Element. I can't imagine what that must have been like. It was quite full on and I hadn't really sort of taken it on. And I, I was on my own reading these files because they were given to me in a, in a very rogue way, really. They should not have given... She gave them to me at a train station in Bolton, just handed them to me in a plastic bag Okay. on Platform 4. I was say, you know... So I, got, I went back and I was completely on my own. Now there's a lot more support systems set up. And I always say to curlivers when I meet them, if you're going to do this, if they ever bring it up, you know, please make sure you've got people around you. Because I didn't know what I was dealing with. And I was still busy trying to fit in with this group of women that I felt so removed from. I actually went out the night that I got those files with one of those women, got absolutely obliterated and burst into tears. Then I woke up the next day and felt really embarrassed. That was what I felt. I felt embarrassed that I'd cried. You know, this is how disconnected I was at sort of 23 from, I suppose, my own experience. I know I would have been younger, 22 I was. And then, yeah, and then I sort of left those files. And then my auntie had a baby. Um, and I actually was there for the birth. And that was weird. I had this kind of very primal experience of grief for the first time. I was like, oh, my fucking God. That is what it is, a mum and dad, and that is a child being born, and that is what I didn't have. So even though I'd known all my life, I kind of suddenly went, oh, my God, these people left me. I didn't have that, and I just saw it in a very physical way with this child being born. So then I went into shock. I was sort of shell-shocked. Went and hid in a hospital, actually, in, in the corridor of the hospital where my, mom, my, my auntie was having this baby, and I was sort of shaking. Then I went into severe depression, actually. I was really depressed. Then I actually had to go for, for therapy. I had to go for psychiatric 
test because I thought I'm, I'm, I'm I was suicidal actually. It was really not well. Um, and then actually it was through that I did a, a, a test with a psychologist. They write all these things about you, don't they? Kind of, uh, and then I ended up going for CBT, and that was like a, a three-year process. I, I actually went for therapy on the NHS. You're supposed to get a, a maximum of thirty sessions. Mm-hmm. I went. She said, you just have to keep coming. <laughs> she wrote a letter okay. to the head of the department okay. and said, we need Sophie to just keep coming until she's been through all that. Oh so it's quite a long process. And I suppose what I learned through that was a, a numerous things, really, was, you know, one was, you know, that I do have a tendency to beat myself up. I'm quite harsh on myself. You know, that comes from abandonment and just really trying to make sure I'm not abandoned, you know. So then it was kind of, is this too heavy? No, not at all, not at all. It was kind of about making sure that I, I try really hard to, you know, one of the things she taught me in the therapy, she said, what does your life look, what would your ideal life look like now? Rather than looking in the future, what, what does it look like right now? And that was when I started to put roots down in Manchester, popping, go, right, what do I want out of my life now? Yeah. You know, what do I need, you know, to be happy now? You know, so just created a life that, allowed me to grow, but then also was was enjoyable at the time, rather than kind of, you know, putting a lot of pressure on myself, which is what is something I still struggle with. I mean, I can be really overdriving. She calls me an overdriver, the okay. therapist. And then what happens as a result is... Overdriver of, of yourself or other of people? Of yourself. So then of yourself. So you put, I put so much pressure on myself. You, you know, really, you must do this and you must do that. And you haven't done this and you should do this. And if you look at the root of it, it's just to, so I can avoid being abandoned. So it's like, you know, you know... But actually, you know, what I had to do with with that is just try and feel comfortable with myself in a, in a in a happy medium, and in my in, in the place that I am, which is something that I think I've managed to do. But obviously, you're not cured, are you? You have to completely sure. remind yourself often. And when your life, for me, if life goes off track, it, you know that I've I, I worked really hard to keep a balanced existence. Mm. And actually, last year my life did go off track. I came out of a long term relationship and. You know, things like that really scare me. I've, I've only just sort of got back on track, I think, recently. But, you know, for me, it's very important to have, like, routine. You mm-hmm. know, I, I need to be exercising. You know, I need to look after myself because if I don't, I just I, I feel I beat myself up for it. My mum has drug-induced psychosis. There's a lot of schizophrenia and psychosis in the family, which I joke and say, you know, great for me because I'm genetically wired to be hilarious, you know, because they've done tests, haven't they, that prove that comedians have more psychotic traits than anybody else okay which is great for me you know <laughs> but on the other hand it means that i do have to I've, i have a joke i say i don't um struggle with my mental health but i certainly have to watch it like a disobedient child yeah. you know if left unattended it would probably flood the bathroom and lit batteries you know so i do have to keep an eye on it you know and and to what extent do gigs feature in your mental health whether like the like a common thread maybe for a lot of comics is is the idea of the the huge adrenaline rush from smashing a gig or conversely the the sort of you know being plunged into despair when it goes badly and, you know they're, they're such wildly divergent versions of oneself yeah yeah that can be really painful to get to grips with i mean they seem to me my, my instinct but maybe wrongly would be that a room full of people not enjoying your comedy sort of isn't the worst thing that's happened to you. <laughs> you know, it doesn't affect a... me that much, actually. Yeah, it doesn't... Every now and again you have one where you come off and you feel like, ugh, awful, don't you? Or But never really stand-up gigs. You know, more 
sort of interviews where this is fine. But, <laughs> really? No, but I have done interviews. I've just thought, I don't know. You know, because that's different because you're dealing... It's more stuff like that. I think stand-up, you're performing still, aren't you? And it's kind of you have an element of control. Yes. Oh, or okay. Whatever. So, might be in like interviews. The risk of an interview going in inverted commas badly might play into your kind of abandonment issues. Do you think that you've? Yeah, like, or just thinking. I think might... that person thinks I'm a twat. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's all that stuff. Probably, is, if I was to feel any anxiety, it'd be more of that. Okay. But also, I do have a rule that I think is really good to try and do is not to dwell on it. You know, let it be. Move on. You've said weird things before. You'll say them again. Do you know what I mean? It, you know. And I think when when it comes to the work stuff, I'm I'm I, I'm quite good at letting it go, and I don't carry the anxiety too much of these things. You know, I have at certain times. If like last year, for example, I was feeling really all over the place. I was kind of sort of homeless a bit and living on couches with friends. Then moving house, so it was all a bit of a disaster. So if my base and my centre is not there, mm. then I'm more likely to be affected emotionally by a bad gig or a bad moment or worrying you know whereas actually if you're more centered and you've got that base and you've got that place to switch off you're not as you know easily affected by things around you and what's happening you know we started to talk a little bit about the 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 writing process that you come up with a sentence for what the show's about and we'll before we go beyond that let's just look at the coming up with of the sentence is that a case of you you know, just in the most kind of simple way possible. Is that the case of you sitting in an office or in a cafe and just writing lots of sentences until you get it? Or what, what well, is the that? The theatre like? background still is intrinsic. So I always start with getting partnerships first to work on the show with. So there would be theatres. And what I ask of the theatres is that I can get rehearsal space. I've got a room, you know, and I'll hopefully work with a few. So last time with with thing I had contact theatre in Northern Stage. So then you're travelling as well. So travel to Newcastle, uh-huh. do a residency of two weeks, writing, and then do sharings for the staff there. So okay. that I'm getting, you know... And then, uh, you know, same with uh, contact theatre, did a residences. You know, so you're getting, uh, you know... And is that when you say doing sharings for the staff, what, what make... Uh, my guess is that what makes you eligible for them to consider you is that you're saying, look, the subject matter of this is Well, also important. I have relationships with these venues because I've actually been working sure. as an artist, p- producer for, well, it's been like nearly 10 years. It has been 10 years. So I've known these one venue for 10 years, one of them for four years, and they've both developed a series of work with me. So I book my own tours as well, and that's because I've got relationships with venues. Yeah, which is, okay. You know... Great, actually, because it means you, they can be involved creatively and, and actually they want to be involved. And because I'm Arts Council funded and the shows are, you know, more socially engaged or they're more theatrical, I suppose they're more, I hate to say artistic because that's not fair because comedy is very artistic. It's a different word for it. I don't know what it is. Yes, a... the, like you want them to actually affect change. Yeah, I mean? so that's, different... that's part of it, maybe. It's not just, here's, you know, 200 one-liners about any subject. It's, it's a not, show, it's not isn't it? I make a show as opposed to an hour of stand-up. Yes. Both are brilliant. I love an hour of stand-up, so I have no... Because I know people can get very tribal about that. Sure. You know, stand-up's the way, or it's like we should be moving shows. I think both are brilliant, actually. I know that this is where my strength is in shows and actually that's why I have the connections mm-hmm. and actually when I'm working with theatres, that's what they want is shows as well. So, so you know, and actually the process is still very theatrical because I'm writing narrative-based stuff that comes from what I've said in an Arts Council application to what I'll deliver, you yeah. know. 
So then I'll get in a space. And also, I've already written an arts council bid, and I've already got that in. So already, I've had to formulate the thoughts of what my show is about. Well, this let's talk about this because the, certainly the way I now write is I when I've start when I start with a blank piece of paper, I try and just write all. I just try and free write, write anything, just free write. Yeah. To get whatever's in my head at the time, and kind of then it's a, quite a long way into the process. I go, oh, that's it's all yeah. about effort or it's all about guilt or something like yeah. that now that is the antithesis of a process where you have to put your money where your mouth is first and say I'm but i do that here. as well because I, I i so i do that as well so I'll, I'll do free writes all the time that book the artist's way uh-huh, have you yeah. read it i mean it's sort of wanky in a way but then also there's some really great exercises sure. in it. you know i think that's a really good place to start is it with free writes and seeing all the themes that come up and then like being able to articulate just you know, one thing that it's about. And with the Arts Council application, that can be quite ambiguous and it changes. Okay. Do you know what I mean? With the Arts Council application, you want to get what what's your social point that you're going to do? You know, so I'd, I'd mentioned in my branded application, I'm going to be looking at, you know, labelling, because I had mentioned that, but I also said this is going to be a feminist show that looks at feminism through a, a voice that we don't often hear in the feminist mm-hmm. environments. Mm-hmm. You know, normally it's, you know, predominantly middle class and I want this to be a very unique take on feminism mm-hmm. so that was something I wanted to talk about that wasn't the main theme of the show in the end that was just a little bit of it but I suppose when I write the shows I, I do loads of free writes like you and then think a lot about that same thing about what it, what is it about you know and in the meantime you're doing bits of material you're writing material for different bits but then also just continually thinking what that Quinton Crisp was quite helpful to me oh yeah because he's quite an interesting man he has a lot about living on the fringes of normal and what it means to live outside of society's norm and it's basically being queer isn't it you know so he has some great one-liners don't try and fit into the norm just give them your social security number and let them find you (laughs) you know he's brilliant so you know things like that and just i mean i also have a a, 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 i always do an album like a soundtrack for when i'm writing so when i'm out and about i've got my soundtrack that's all related to the show and the things i want to explore Ah, at what point in the process do you compile the album well, I start doing it throughout, so it's okay. like way back, you know. So, say you start writing your show, it's like you come back from Edinburgh, mm-hmm. and it's like September, isn't it? You've got to start thinking. So, in September, I start adding to a new album of things. And you know, if you're writing anything, whatever I'm writing, if it's a treatment for a sitcom idea or or whatever, it, it helps to have an album. At That's my a time. great idea. I've never done that. That makes me think I should have been doing that. It just it's, helps, yeah. just because when you're walking down the road and. Actually, you just listen to some music and you can start thinking about that bit of what... And I suppose, you know, it's that... It depends what your writing's like, but with shows, they tend to be quite filmic, don't they, shows? You know, they're more emotionally driven, they're more filmic. If you're doing stand-up, I think that's very different. I suppose it's how, you know, how your brain works and what, uh, you know, and how you actually communicate. I think I'm a very emotional communicator. I don't mean emotional like, you know, crying. I just mm-hmm. mean every every feeling is first i suppose you know what i mean yes yeah that's interesting feeling is first does that make sense yeah yeah i i think so yeah i'm trying to wonder i'm I'm wondering what sort of writer i am on the like what are the other things that are first with some people i guess for some people it's like the idea is first or yeah winning the argument is first or something like that so feeling being first i think i is think a... feeling is first for me and then also you know then there's the ideas i like twisting things but I think I'm driven mainly by a feel by feelings because I'm an overly emotional person, probably. <laughs> but it's, I think different people have different 
ways of, of communicating and then they have ways of different ways of writing as a result. So with your with your next show when you write mm-hmm. it, um will you be refining the territory that you've already kind of claimed or will you be pushing on the different territory? I can't say because it's a while away. I've got an idea of something that I want to explore, but I definitely don't want to be talking retrospectively about my background. I feel I'm done with that. So I want okay. to be more in the present. Um, and, you know, I touched on this in Branded about the obsession with identity politics and how if you've got an opinion, now you've got to back it up with, you know, experience rather than facts. But then also I'm a bit bored of kind of talking about my own identity. I'm just a bit bored of that at the moment. So sure. I have no idea. I've got an idea of an interest that I want to explore, but I don't know uh, how much of it will be on that territory. In order to package your show for a stand-up audience, for, yeah. for Edinburgh, say, or for, yeah. a, for Edinburgh as opposed to a kind of tour, do you think that there are constraints on your writing? I don't think there is. And I think it's uh, your, uh, the challenge is to make sure that if you find something is a bit of a brick wall but you feel you've got to do it, how can you do it? And I think that's always the thing, not I can't, how. It's like the same with arts council applications. I help other people write bids sometimes. And one thing they'll say is, oh, well, they're asking for that, so I can't do that now. No, but it's like, no, you can, but how? You know, how can you make it? So just like being really creative and thinking outside the box. Okay, if this is something that feels like it's a no-go, how can you get around it? How can you... Do you know can what you I mean? give me an example? Of, so I think that's really interesting. What, what... So with, with arts council, for example, um, you know, often... Uh, you know, they will want to make sure that there's, like, you know, more social engagement. So I was working with an artist at the moment. She was saying, well, I don't really know what I would do with social engagement. So I said, well, what are you interested in? You want to work with a group of curlivers. You want to set up this society. Okay, how could you do more creative activities with them? Well, you know me, I could give you 20 free tickets to my show. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Lem Sisse, he's a curlever. Could you have a Q&A? So, you know, all these possibilities. I think that's the really exciting thing with... Anything creative, isn't it? It's like there's just so much possibilities. If you hit a, a dead end, it's like there's so many other routes to go down, you know? And is that is that that attitude towards I how to s- deal with a brick wall, which seems very innately you, yeah. like just how can I kind of octopus around it somehow? Yeah. Um, is, that, is that reflected in your... Stand-up. Yeah, in your stand-up. I think your... so. Like, I really wanted to talk about class in a complex way where I turned around... To everybody who'd awarded me working class hero and says, sorry, I'm not what you think. You know, I'm not that. I'm actually a bit more complex than that. That was quite a challenging thing to do and could have gone either way for me. So I thought about how can I do that? You know, how can I do that in a way that is, you know, authentic and honest? And I'm saying things that people don't want to hear, but I'm not taking them too far. You know, and the same with escorting. I looked at escorting in my show. I talk about being a sex worker. I did not want that to be the whole show. Yeah, because I didn't want to do a happy hooker it, show. It would have been very easy to make that decision, wouldn't it? And yeah. Go, well, this is a big story. There's a huge amount of issues that yeah. could become all of it. But I, I, you know, this is what people would say. Oh God, you've got a great story. I never write anything for the story. I don't, I'm not interested in writing my story. For me, it's about you know using what I've experienced to talk about something else that I'm more interested in. So for me in this one, it was about labels. It was about looking at the limitation of being labelled and allowing yourself to take labels, you know. And sex worker is another label of a marginalised group of people. 
who get processed as either a victim, a demon or a hero. Mm -hmm. And all of those are limiting and not necessarily truthful to the actual victim or escort or demon or whatever you mm -hmm. want to call her, you know. So I wanted to explore escorting as part of a wider thing, you know, not as my story. And, and people always focus. They always say, God, you've had, you've had such a story. I mean, it's, that's, you've got great stand-up because of your story. It's like, no, actually, I think I, I'm always more interested in, 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 in everything else and letting my story feed into a wider narrative, really. What, what um, mistakes do people make about you? Um, I think you get this a lot and you just have to put it down to... In comedy, I think you get the tribe of people who say that, uh, you know, stand-up should be stand-up, none of this, you know, bollocks with the narrative and the story. And I completely see that point because I do think there is, you know, certain shows that feel like they are just for the story and they're there to manipulate the system a bit and drop the lights at 40 minutes, cry, slit your wrists and pour it on the front row. There is that going on. So I can understand that frustration. Uh, but then also, you know, you'll get, in any art form, you will get people who will try and rip it off and not do do it very well. You know, and then I get the other side of it where people say, oh, you didn't go in deep enough, so be not dark enough. You know, you could have gone a bit... Because I am quite optimistic and I don't sort of play the victim, I don't think. And for me, it's not about saying my mother was a heroine addict. You know, I'm not interested in doing that. I'm here to tell my story, be very funny, I hope, and, and, and also, you know, say what I want to say and my story feed into that. So do you know what I mean? Mm. So I get both camps of, of judgment there. Um, and, you know, and then I think, you know, it took me a long time for anyone to take me seriously. I think people do assume you're a bit thick when you've got this accent. And, you know, so it's nice that you know, people do are starting to listen and take me more seriously now. But then, obviously, you don't want to be taken too seriously, you know. <laughs> so I think it's probably those two, really, is, is the kind of... The, the tribes that stand-up can, can form, and then you get judged on both sides of those tribes, really. Particularly, oh, she's doing a show, she's got a big, deep story. It's probably that. You know what I mean? Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. Thank you. <laughs> So that was Sophie. Thank you so much to her for sharing all of that amazing insight and for being very honest about the way that she deals with everything and for being so open with... Um, you remember I said at the beginning of this episode, lots of comics are going to go, ooh, can you get Arts Council funding? Not without an unbelievable amount of work and commitment, you can't. And I think she's just one of those people that when you talk to her, you come away kind of burning with a real fervour to, to do something beyond necessarily what you're just doing. She's a very, very inspirational person and is also very funny because let's, you know, we can, uh, <laughs> we can all be inspirational. We absolutely can't. But the point I'm making is we can't all be really funny and Sophie is definitely in that category. So do see her stuff where you can. I know she's not going to Edinburgh, but I believe she is touring and I will put that in the show notes. Go to sophiewillen.com for any details you might need. Her tour is happening throughout June and takes her all over the UK as well as the Soho Theatre in London from the 12th to the 23rd of June. So sophiewillen.com for all your information there. I will post Amble at you in just a moment, but for now, that concludes the podcast. Do subscribe at comedianscomedian.com slash donate or insider, or insiders, I don't know. Try them out, have a go, see what you think. Um, I've tried to refine the, the system so it's all a bit easier to understand. And thank you to everyone who has been doing that and becoming an insider and getting to enjoy all the sexy, cool stuff on The Secret Podcast. 
So um, thanks to them, thanks to you, and if you've enjoyed this and you aren't in a position to donate financially, then please support the show by liking, subscribing on your podcast apps or on iTunes or any of the myriad of Android ones that are available increasingly. Every day a new Android app comes out. Um, And uh, you can also say nice things to people about the show. And if you know really excited like if you're best buddies not if you met once but if you're best buddies with uh, an exciting or invigorating or even high profile comic who you think would be good uh, then drop me a line and go Psst, i've got a sweet hookup with such and such and uh, but only if you genuinely do have that sweet hookup so that's all of that uh comedianscomedian.com slash tour to see me on tour and i am absolutely burning with oh, swindon was so great <laughs> and it's not that the others haven't been good but that really was A perfect peach of a show. Speak to you soon. So what to do with this post-amble, um, was odd pronunciation, other than simply bang on about how great Swindon was? What else is going on in the world? I saw some friends today for my friend's 40th birthday, part two. That's a thing, now everyone stretches their birthday out. Um, there's a part two or possibly part three, but... A friend of mine was there, someone who I know very well but don't see very often, and their new, I think, seven-month-old baby was with them, and it was their, it's their second child. And I got to hold the hand of a little seven-month-old baby as we walked through the streets. The baby was not walking. The baby was in a papoose. And uh, they fell asleep clutching my finger, and I went, oh, yeah, babies, I remember. And it really opened a floodgate of going, oh, wow, it's not just some... You know, I mean, I'm aware that I'm having a second child soon, financially but uh, i'm uh, i'm aware of it in terms of what it might mean to the family and how the dynamics going to change and all those sorts of things but i haven't really been aware of it in terms of oh yes holding a little tiny baby's hand and feeling how soft it is um because these days my kid just punches me and pushes me and uh, gets all aggro and he's all, all often to give him his fair due uh, exceptionally lovely. I, I, I was going to mention a, a gorgeous thing he said about the arrival of uh, the baby or the oncoming storm, as he would know if he knew what it means. Um, he said something very sweet, but I'm not going to bore you with that, lest I get accused of wanging on about my child. So, and here's a thing that I've been doing. So I, I hadn't realised that this was unusual until someone remarked upon it. When I, um, when I am travelling to gigs and tour shows in an attempt to make use of the time to do a thing, do a useful thing whilst doing a, a necessary thing. One of the ways in which I'm working that I really feel I'm getting a lot out of is to listen back to recordings of uh, the previous preview, the previous night's um, uh, new material stuff, the, you know, the second half of the show, the workshoppy bit. And as I'm listening to that, pause it and make notes on a different app um, about you know tweaking it as i go along and it's incredible the 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 streamlining of your line of thinking uh, the streamlining of your thinking is probably a faster way of saying that when you are doing something when you're in motion it's much easier to achieve like i really would struggle to sit in a cafe or sit in an office and listen back to a show and stop and make notes and then get back listening to it I know that because I've tried it hundreds of times and sometimes it's incredibly difficult to remain focused and you end up going, oh, there's an idea for a joke. Is What if it was the capital of Uruguay? I'd better look that up. Oh, suddenly there's the internet and then it's very hard to pin yourself back down. But doing it when in motion, going for a walk, is really satisfying. And it occurred to me, one of the things I might give to the, the insiders on the old uh, private thing 
is um, I might just upload one of them. But then I listen back to one to think, is this good enough? Do I say anything awful on this that I'll regret? Because it's a very private sort of process. And what happened was I had the idea to maybe release one out of interest, just, you know, just on the, on the private feed to see if, if uh, you people uh, are interested in, you know, because I often surprise myself by kind of coining a joke as I'm going. And I thought, oh, that'd be fun to listen to. And then as soon as I thought that'd be fun to listen to, I um, I suddenly changed from an honest discussion with myself to a slightly stagey performative discussion with myself. And I couldn't get it out of my head. And then I thought, well, come on. There's no point... Like, what do I mean? There's no point getting... There's no point destroying this actually very useful technique of talking to oneself in a recorded manner... Um, and then sitting down later and just transcribing all of that and going, oh, that's, that's what I said, you know, noting it. There's no point in throwing that away just so that I've got an extra thing to give out. So, but now I might already have wrecked it because the few times I've done it recently, the last few times I've done it, um, it has still felt stagey because in the back of my mind I've been like, oh, I might release this. I can't even make a note to myself without being concerned about giving it away. Having said that, we know comedy giveth and taketh at the same time and the thing it giveth on this occasion was that last night, and this is a reference to, to Swindon, but I won't say the word again, lest you become very bored. In the second half, I tried a brand new idea. Like, I did some strong-ish new stuff for, like, four or five minutes, and I was like, right. And then I launched into an idea I'd had in the car on the way there. And it's a big, long, sort of... Not a set-piece idea. Yeah, it's a big, long idea with one or two jokes in it. There's definitely room for more. But then it ends on a big, funny reveal. It's, it's a, almost a shaggy dog story, but it's about theatricality, and it's about... You know, it's a very... I think if I can make it work, there's a, there's a long way for it to go. It's, it's, it's capable of sort of a, carrying big flights of fancy and some big physical stuff, and those are my two favourite things to perform in my comedy. So I did, I, uh, I did that bit, and it it was it was got a it got a laugh it got like a, enough just enough of a laugh like a 33% laugh from the room 33% take up which i was like oh there's something in that given that i did a fairly shonky version of the idea and then i said to the audience hey there's there's something in that should i let's let's workshop it i sat down and i said what do you think has that got legs and to an audience member, everyone cheered, no! <laughs> and not only was that very funny, well done, everyone, but, um, and also, I, you know, it was kind of banter on the part of the audience. I think the audience all had the idea for the same joke at the same time. It demonstrably was funny, you pricks. Um, but I think everyone was enjoying telling me it wasn't. God, this is going to... If you don't know me or trust in the work, this is going to sound... If this is your first time you've ever listened to a post album, I must sound absolutely delusional. Everyone shouted at me that, no, it wasn't funny, but I knew it was. Guys, you're just joshing. But what it meant was I had a very honest reaction in having a go at them and then deciding to punish them with some weak material, and then that got laughs, and it, it really set a really fun tone for me. It set a tone for the rest of what then turned into an hour of, of new stuff in that second half, which is longer than I normally do. So we were having so much fun. And it reminded me of a very honest performative moment from years ago, back when I was a drink now street performer. <laughs> and in many ways, I was a drink now street performer. But um, uh, I dropped one of my juggling clubs in my double act that I used to do with my best buddy, Noel. We were called the Unknown Stuntmen. And uh, we did stunts, which were unknown. <laughs> it was a lot of flim flam, really, but quite fun. And, um, and well, it was super fun. It was a great show. But there was a bit where... 
I'm doing a flashy juggling trick and then he does something very poor and we've kind of manipulated the audience into loving him. He's manipulating the audience into loving him by being lovable. And I would do a flashy trick and they'd clap a bit because it's quite impressive. Then he'd do almost nothing and they'd go mental to annoy me. And then during that section, I dropped one of the clubs. And just once, on this just one time, everyone kind of went, and I reacted immediately and honestly and went, shut up, shut up. And it was the funniest thing. It was probably the funniest single... Like, non-joke moment, funny, like, joke-joke, you know, it's like the, the funniest single character moment that I ever had in, in that double act, which we did for years. And something similar happened last night at this gig, whereby I just managed to hit a note that was where I was furious with them, with you, for, for not behaving as I wanted you to, and it worked, and it made me just go, oh, 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 yeah, I, I remember that little thread, let's pursue that a bit. So that is quite an ambular post-amble, but I'm... I was really excited by that. And, God, this is such a great thing about art. Let's all, in the same way that you walk off after a good gig thinking, God, I wish I could bottle this feeling. I'm not looking forward to 11am tomorrow when I have to stop thinking about it. In the same way as you think, I wish I could bottle this feeling, sometimes the great thing about art is, you know, creativity, let's say. (laughs) Let's Let's hesitate before we call it art. The great thing about creativity is that it's just there. It's so infinite. It's like... Love or some bollocks like that. <laughs> That'll do. Thanks, you. This has been fun. Uh, next week, Anuvab Pal. And then I think Raymond and Timkins. I think, no, next week, what is this? 248? 249 is Anuvab Pal, which means it's big 250. So it's going to be. I've got three potential specials for 250, and I haven't decided which to do. It's not to suggest for a moment that the fabulous Raymond and Timkins review aren't special, but. The three I've got in mind are particularly meaningful to this show, me and you. So let's see which one of those we choose, and then uh, you will get to enjoy R&T before long. Great. Speak soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.